Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital, focusing primarily on consumer-facing businesses. There's also more content and opportunities to get involved and meet others if you head over to theconsumervc.com. Our guest today is Aaron Fu, head of growth at Catalyst Fund. Catalyst Fund is an inclusive fintech accelerator that is focused on investing in companies located in different parts of Africa, India, and Mexico. They support innovative startups building affordable, accessible, and appropriate solutions to reach the world's 3 billion underserved, while accelerating innovation ecosystems across emerging markets. We focus our conversation on the difference between selling to a consumer, SMB, and enterprise business, how he analyzes emerging markets, and how some of these companies scale cross-border. Without further ado, Here's Aaron. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Great. Thanks, Mike. Really, really glad to be here. Really appreciate you coming on the show. So, you know, I was reading through the companies you've invested in. It seems like the majority, including the B2B side, are selling to SMBs or, you know, individuals rather than large enterprises. When you're analyzing products for these types of markets or these are your customers, what are some of the differences in your due diligence approach than, you know, a company that might be focusing on selling to enterprises? Sure. And, you know, I think one of the coolest things that we're able to see with our companies selling to small businesses businesses is that a lot of these small businesses in emerging markets really are sole traders and you're very often selling to an individual as well. So your factors of consideration around usability become really, really important, right? You almost need to have consumer level of ease of use as well as a consumer level of like understanding of, of the product. So I think I think these things are, are really important. I think contrasting that to enterprise sales, whereby you're looking for, you know, a much more, I guess, sophisticated product that potentially you know, will require a ton of different integrations into a large corporate, you're really looking for a very simple product when it comes to small businesses with very often single use cases. And and so I think like one of the key differences for us is, you know, we spend a lot more time if a startup focuses on small businesses to understand how an entrepreneur, especially one that might not be so familiar with a ton of different types of technology, be able to adapt, learn about and utilize the product. So it is an interesting blend of sort of, you know, on the consumer side, being able to analyze like how an individual feels about a product uh, as well as sort of business utility. 
No, that makes sense. So it seems like when you're selling to enterprises, it's much more about having multiple features or functionality rather than if you're selling to an individual or SMBs, it's about maybe one use case and easy adoption. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a, a small merchant is very happy to use a new thing to do one very specific thing. But I think for an enterprise, for it to commit to bringing in a new piece of technology, a new piece of software, I think if it only solves a very tiny sliver, I think it's a much, much harder sell process. So what's some of the differences in the business model that entrepreneurs need to account for when the customer is maybe a small business versus a consumer? Yeah. So I think, you know, we, we spend a lot of time looking at this. And I think one of the things that we keep hearing is that small businesses are really resistant to change, especially when it comes to something that can affect how they interact with their customers. So what is the risk of introducing a new payment system and it failing for two days? right? If it fails for two days, they might not be able to make any money at all for that, that two days. And they might not be able to actually put any food on the table for those two days. So I think the risk is actually like really, really high, especially again, with the micro merchants that our startups typically work with. And so like designing the an appropriate kind of customer education, designing an appropriate kind of, you know, onboarding to really, you know, coach these micro merchants through the utilization of the products, maybe sort of like, you know, actually, be there physically with them during their first few transactions. All that is really, really important because I guess as a consumer, you know, downloading something new to view different kinds of content, what's the downside risk of that at failing, right? Like, okay, fine. I watch the live soccer game tonight, but if it fails when it comes to being able to order new stock, when it fails, when it comes to being able to record a transaction, when it fails, when it becomes unable to issue new credit to a customer, I think all these are dramatic, dramatic impacts on a small business, which very often will have very little liquidity and very little sort of like cash reserves to be able to withstand periods of non-operation. That's a great point about the necessity of a product. You know, if you're selling to a small business, more likely then that the product has to be robust, has to last. Rather, if you're selling for a consumer, if it shuts down for a day, I mean, obviously it's still a big deal, but it might not be as big of a deal for the consumer because it's not actually impacting them per se as much. Exactly. I guess economic impact is very large. And I think also like consumers are a little bit more forgiving right? So I log in once, it doesn't work. I log in twice, I might try it again, third time at max, right? But like for a small business, I think if you fail them like once in a critical enough way, you're never going to get them to even try your platform again, no matter whether they've been onboarded fully or not, you know? So I think the the risk of, you know, non-performance is, is super high. Right. Right. Absolutely. So another theme that I kind of came across when I was looking at your portfolio was this theme of uh, cross-border exchange. And as you know, I spoke with Maya from Ingressive and she spoke about how when company expands cross-borders, it's really not as straightforward. And of course, in Maya's case, she's talking about Africa, the continent, and expanding to different countries. When you're thinking about investing in these types of companies when it comes to cross-border, what are some of the risks? Sure. I think like a very, very large part of the risk is really just the bandwidth of the team. I mean, building a startup and sort of solidifying yourself in your home market is, is hard enough. You're up against a ton of incumbents. You're up against a ton of regulatory pressure. Often you're up against a lot, you know, and so the sort of conscious decision to dedicate, I don't know, 10, 15% of your organization's bandwidth towards exploring a new market, which bear in mind at that moment is generating nothing to be explored, I think is, is a very high one. I think second of all is sort of the idea of how deeply do you understand this new market? 
market that you want to go into, right? How, how are you able to hire the local expertise that you need, find the right local partners that you need? And I think that last point around partners is very, very key. What we've seen in, in our portfolio and in my own experience in, in, in Africa really is you see more startups scale into other markets together with their existing partners. The good news is that you have a lot of you know, large banks, large telcos, large FMCG companies, which do span multiple geographies. And if you're already working with them in, in one geography, working with the same organization to go into another geography that they're already in, I think that helps de-risking significantly. But I still do think it opens yourself up to a fair bit of risk. But there are a lot of mitigation mechanisms. I've also worked with founders who you know, very intentionally spend a lot of resources to hire extremely strong expansion team members or you know, their first local CEO is incredibly strong and they are able to build a team around themselves. Or sometimes they actually grow through acquisition, right? Like it might be a little bit counterintuitive to think that, you know, a startup at its early stage could actually start acquiring other companies. But very often you do see that happen whereby there is a company that's in a very similar space whose missions align, who might just be one or two you know, levels or fundraising rounds underneath you and you just really want to work together. And so it ends up being a nice uh, acquire situation and you're able to also then, you know, spin up um, into a new country quite quickly. So there are a variety of approaches to, to de-risk some of these challenges. Yeah, I think that those are all excellent points. I mean, in terms of understanding new markets, you know, some of the things as well that Maya said, and in terms of when you're actually picking new partnership, that in order to enter different countries, you really have to be thinking about partnerships very thoroughly and really looking at consumer trust with the company that you're looking to partner with and how knowing and actually having that company that already has a good reputation, a good brand, that's incredibly vital. Absolutely. I mean, you're absolutely borrowing that other company's, you know, trust, pool of trust within the consumers. The other sort of good news is, you know, even without that pool of trust, right? Like as a new startup brand, the worst you can do is be competing against other new startup brands. And, you know, I think very often that also kind of works out anyway. But ideally you would go in with a partner. Certainly it's a highly recommended way to navigate new markets, especially again, especially in Africa when things are so different from market to market and when you really need that local nuance in order to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the areas that when we first spoke that I thought was really interesting was you mentioned about how what you're seeing businesses that have started in Africa also overlap and have done quite well outside of Africa, especially within the South American and Mexico markets. And so I just wanted to know what you're seeing and some of the reasons why these companies have been able to be successful overseas. Sure. You know, I think when the first venture firm that, that I joined when I was in Africa, Nest based in Hong Kong, was, was actually primarily focused on investing into startups in Africa to, to help them scale into Asia. And I think I still continue to have this you know, strong belief that there was a, a period of time where Africa imported technology. I think we're currently in a period of time where Africa is building technology for itself to solve its own problems. But I'm really looking forward to us being on the cusp of you know, Africa building solutions for the world. And, and I think that will continue to be driven forward. I think one of the big things driving that initial thesis as to African startups scaling to Asia for us back at Nest was really around the demographics, right? And sort of the challenges that each of these ecosystems face. So, you know, a very, very young population across the board, a very rapidly urbanizing population. A lot of these are, you know, entrepreneurially minded young people who are very familiar with technology and are, you know, very familiar with mobile devices. They're also economically active. So both on the consumption front, as well as on the, I guess, job front as well. So income too. And because we saw a lot of these similarities, 
we thought that a lot of solutions that were developed in Africa actually could do really well in Asia. I think one of the examples that, you know, concept that did really well in Myanmar, for example, is mobile money. Although pioneered in Kenya in many ways, I think it's really sort of like gone into mobile money 2.0 in Myanmar through wave money. You know, my friend Brad, like from sort of day one, decided that like USSD is great, but what if that was not a limitation? What if we could build a more money experience that was 100% web-based and the consumers that we served were 100% comfortable with web-based environment on their phone? Like what could that look like, right? So I think it's actually taken things to the next level. In terms of like what we've seen to have made these entrepreneurs successful in growing cross-continent, I think one of the standout elements actually has been their investors. So very often what you see is that an investor that's very familiar with the lending space or the personal finance space or the small business finance space has invested in the company in Africa, but then also equally does a lot of this work you know, in Mexico, in Thailand, in Indonesia, and elsewhere. And so they help the organization or the startup think about you know, these markets and how to best gear itself up to those markets, as well as help that particular startup enter these markets as well. So I think, you know, we talked about partners earlier. I think your investor is absolutely your partner as well. And I think investors, especially ones that focus on global emerging markets like the Catalyst Fund, you know, we have expertise that span multiple geographies very often in a single sector, but it does mean that we understand that sector a little bit deeper across multiple regions and are able to help drive that. First of all, really appreciate that. It's another reason why some of these companies have done really well is because a lot of the adoption, a lot of folks, consumers or small enterprise businesses, a lot of their first touch point with the internet was on mobile rather than on laptop. I could be very, very wrong about that, but I'm just curious if, first of all, that's the case, if their first touch point with the internet, similar to example, I'm thinking of China, where a lot of consumers, their first touch point with the internet was smartphones, not laptops. And I'm curious if in emerging markets, if that's all also the case where the smartphone almost became before the laptop, if that makes sense. Sure. And I would go one step further. I think what you're describing is sort of like, you know, designing for mobile first. And I certainly think that a startup's capability to continually to design mobile first in Africa can help it do really well in other markets, which are mobile first as well. But, you know, I actually think that in a lot of markets that we operate in, like these, even if it's a small business or even if it's an individual, it's not just mobile first, it's mobile only, right? It's the only device that they're accessing the internet through. And they haven't actually, you know, seen any need to move on to, to another device. So I think, you know, for a lot of technology teams, that's a limitation in terms of what they can deliver. But I think for teams who are, you know, born and, you know, born and bred in markets like that, it's very natural for them to be designing for users that only have a mobile device to be able to conduct their, their entire life. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And of course, just a lot of differences between emerging markets. And I know that, as you know, a lot of the guests that I have on the show focus on the U.S. landscape. And so I think that is one of the main differences in that building technology in developing markets, it seems, as you say, a lot of it's mobile only. Whereas if you look at maybe the U.S., maybe Western Europe, some other parts of the world, it's not. So that's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, that, that's on the similarities front. But I think like sticking with mobile, but looking at the differences, I think one of the major differences we've seen drive mobile behavior is also the price of data, or the price of connectivity. Right. And I think that something was a stark difference that we saw sort of between Asia and Africa as well. I think the price per megabyte or price per gigabyte these days is significantly lower or near zero in many Asian markets. And you can see that impacting the amount of like trade, commerce and activity that happens on mobile devices. Right. Like I think data is still certainly relative to purchasing power, like extremely expensive in, in many, 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 many countries in Africa. And I think the power of being able to drive that down and what it can unlock is like, 
like tremendous. You know, I, I think we still see situations where a merchant decides to use a payment system less or a CRM system less or an ordering system less because they just don't want to pay for the data costs. And I, I think that's certainly something that is a little bit different across geographies. Even though the people are the same, I guess the regulations and the larger organizations are different. So will you not invest in certain countries because the cost per gigabyte is too high and you know that consumers would not be able to even afford trying out that piece of technology? No, I, I don't think so. I think it does create a higher threshold of value that needs to get created, right? So it does mean that like in order for the consumer to be able to warrant paying that much for data, the, the utility that you need to deliver is just at a higher bar, which again, you know, if you're able to deliver that utility in a high data cost environment, imagine if you were to enter to a country with a lower data cost environment, right? Like your barrier is significantly lower and you should see much, much stronger adoption. So no, I, I don't think we would you know, avoid markets which are sort of high data costs. But I do think there is a, a correlation between high data costs and overall sort of like, you know, mobile commerce activity. So then as a proxy, what you would then see is that you would see, you know, mobile commerce and mobile adoption as a whole be lower. So we might be wary of countries where that is the case. However, I don't think that sort of dimension alone is something that would be a deal or no deal for us in terms of like countries that we would consider going into. So what has been some of the challenges when investing in consumer facing businesses that are in emerging markets? I think one of the biggest challenges now is the inability to meet those consumers and actually observe them in action using the, using those products. Because that's certainly something that, that we really feel is critical to understanding the potential of the product and actually seeing it in action. So I think certainly right now, it's been really, really difficult to do. We have been utilizing a lot more tools to sort of, you know, observe screens, encouraging our founders to, you know, run more videos of like their customers actually actively using the product. But it's still really been difficult in sort of this day and age of not being able to travel and meet people to actually see how these products are being used. So we're relying a lot more on backend data as well to sort of track interactions and to track sessions and to really understand it that way. But yeah, it's, it's quite tough not being able to, to see people. Has it been hard as well meeting new founders, looking at investment opportunities and conducting due diligence? Yeah, I, I think there's two separate questions in there. So, so I think the first one really is around, you know, meeting new founders for new deal flow. I think that's going to be a challenge. I think right now you're seeing some continued encouraging statistics that, you know, investments in African startups have actually continued to remain strong. There are a lot more deals coming through the pipeline. In fact, you know, it's stronger in this month than it was like this time last year. I think we surpassed all records in African venture investing this year again. But I think a lot of that are deals that, you know, where the relationship was formed before lockdown happened. And so a lot of the due diligence was then like followed on through. I worry a little bit for what deal flow will look like in January, February or March when, when that pipeline of initial meetings has gone dry. And I think what that then leads to is the importance of having partners who are on the ground, whether that's co-investors who are you know based in the cities that they're investing in, whether that's partnership with accelerators or hubs or other organizations who can you know triangulate and help identify companies to work with and maybe even like, you know, share due diligence that they've done on the ground. I think partnerships are going to be really key in the coming months when it comes to sourcing. I think when it comes to, to due diligence, that's, that's I guess, separate, right? And I think we actually just 
wrapped up a, a remote due diligence workshop with uh, 30 fintech investors in Cape Town uh, just a couple of uh, weeks ago at the Africa Early Stage Investment Summit. And I think, you know, some of the things that we discussed was, you know, how do you get a better feel for a team when you've never actually sat down for lunch, when you've never actually sort of like been able to interact in sort of more, I guess, casual environments. And I think some of the responses to that were really sort of trying to speak to more people who have dealt with the team. So whether that's some of their earliest of investors, whether that's some of more of their customers, or whether that's, you know, other stakeholders that they've worked with. We've also seen that due diligence remotely has led to more calls and longer calls, you know, where before it might have just been, you know, you would get on one partner call with just one of the partners, you know, now it's a case whereby you'd have to get on like four separate partner calls with like four of their four of the partners, right? So I think that's also been a bit of a shift. And the final thing that we've kind of seen is people have been jumping a lot more calls which are observational in nature. So a lot of investors are now jumping onto more team calls or more board calls just to understand like how the organization interacts within itself and to have a deeper understanding of team dynamics too. So that's all been really interesting to see. And I think due diligence is continuing to change, but I don't feel it's no one's flag that has become impossible. I just think it's challenging and people are making up for it in, in different ways. We do see, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, sort of increased reliance on the data that you do have access to. So I think right now, data rooms are more important than ever because whereby before you were able to like sit with the company, you know, and go through some of these materials together, like now having the right set of information that an investor can access remotely is really, really key to any founder trying to raise for sure. So having having that in place is important. I've often described like, you know, nowadays having the right data room is like having the right, like, I don't know, clean office, you know, when, when your investor comes in and looks around, he's looking around your data room, trying to figure out how you think, how you operate, how everything's organized, how thorough you are. And I think that's really key, especially right now. Yeah, all this makes a lot of sense. I mean, what I've heard from other investors on the sourcing front is during COVID, if entrepreneurs already have a relationship or they've been sent a deal from someone that they trust or kind of already in a network per se, those entrepreneurs are going to be okay because there's already a bit of trust there. But they worry about entrepreneurs who don't already have a pre-existing relationship with someone in the investment community that in terms of trying to establish conviction amongst with those founders is very difficult. I imagine that you've probably seen that as well? Yeah, 100%. Like establishing a strong sort of gut feel for a team that you've never met before, I think is, is, is really, really, really hard to do. But however, I do think you can, again, make up for it with like a deeper, more rigorous dive into the financials, a deeper, more rigorous dive into the technology. And I think investors are looking for other data points to be able to drive that conviction versus just feel for the individuals running it. Totally. That makes a lot of sense. When it comes to emerging markets, what are a few areas that you're right now focused on or how do you think about opportunities? So I, I think, you know, for us, we're, we're squarely focused on fintech for good. And so, you know, we, we see a lot of potential for, you know, financial services being built for populations where, you know, current traditional financial services have not been able to reach, either because they are traditionally perceived as a as a segment that's not worth servicing because of how much they would be able to generate for the firm or the bank, or a, simply a segment that's too expensive to reach, right? Because either they are too far out or they don't have access to technology and therefore it's tough for them to reach. So, so we see a huge, huge untapped market of small businesses and individuals who could really benefit from a lot of these services and where these startups have the opportunity to in many ways become 
become primary financial service providers for these individuals and small businesses. And I guess to us, more importantly, is also the impact that it would have on these small business and these individuals in their lives, right? They would be equipped with never before seen ability to save, never before seen ability to grow their customer base. Sometimes we see, you know, small businesses who work with some of our companies, you know, are able to reduce their cost of uh, inventory by 20, 30%. And I think all these things, you know, lead to efficiencies, which can create a much more inclusive digital economy in all the markets that we work in. And I think these will be the sort of, you know, cornerstones and the building blocks for much more interesting solutions going forward. But right now, I think, you know, the opportunity really lies in making sure that these startups are building the right, appropriate, affordable and accessible solutions for these underserved audiences, which again, it blows our mind why not more people are looking at these segments, but it is definitely a focus area for us. We have begun to to explore other sectors. So we've been really lucky to be working with the MasterCard Foundation in Ghana. So we have a new mandate that focuses on digital commerce. So we look a little bit more broadly beyond fintech for good. And our inclusive digital commerce program in Ghana is looking to work with scale-ups that are servicing you know, thousands of merchants already and really helping them get to you know, servicing 50,000, 100,000 merchants. And I think all of this is built around the idea that you know, by enhancing the resiliency of these small businesses via digital tools, you're able to drive a stronger economic recovery in Ghana as well, because a lot of these economies rely on small businesses and micro-businesses to be able to, to continue to, to grow. And so we love playing our role when it comes to sharing our expertise in data, in finance, in analytics, in product research with these startups that are designing for this audience. It is an audience that we know really well, and we really hope to be able to continue supporting businesses that are supporting other businesses and individuals in their livelihoods. No, thank you for that. I mean, what do you think is one of the, or, you know, the biggest misconception when it comes to investing in companies that are located and serving emerging markets? Yeah, I maybe can address that on sort of like two extremes of thought. So I guess on one extreme of thought, would be there is no one in that market that can afford the services that startups have to sell, right? I think there's still a perception that, you know, income levels are so low and spending power is so low that like, how can any startup be successful? Right. And I think the counterpoint to that is obviously we've, we've proven out that if you are able to access, you know, a large enough customer base, even though your per customer revenues are perhaps a little bit lower, it just still represents a significant company. I think on the other side of the spectrum, on the, I guess, on the downside would really be, I think a lot of investors come in expecting the cost of acquisition and the cost of retention, the cost of servicing these customers to be incredibly low because after all, they sort of, you know, widely perceived as low value. But actually, the cost to service a customer that's in these markets can actually be surprisingly high if you don't have the right designs and the right sort of partners to be able to serve them. So I think there's very often both an overestimation and an underestimation of the opportunity. And we've been really, really lucky to be working with a lot of our co-investors who are, you know, well-known global names who are starting to do more in Africa. And we certainly have been sharing a lot of our own insights and our learnings around, you know, what to really expect on 
the ground. It's still a very exciting space, but it, it is not something that has, you know, real immediate like-for-like -like parallels anywhere else in the world. It's still one of the most like highly fragmented continents, right? And so I think we certainly hope to be the local partner of choice for these global investors as they look to do more in Africa and help dispel more and more of these myths. No, thank you. That's really useful learning more about your position and as well as looking at costs on both ends of the spectrum, whether it's why invest in emerging markets when where the income levels are still pretty low. And then for investors that might be very enthusiastic to invest, thinking that the actual costs to build a company are low and that might not be necessarily true. So looking at costs on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, the costs and the time. You know, I guess the patience you need. I think, I think one of the certain contributing factors to this like cost of reaching consumers and cost of building a company is also around the digital infrastructure that exists. I think in a lot of the rest of the world, you're able to focus on just building this one sliver and then sort of like, you know, the payment side of it, the logistics side of it, or some other sides of it are taken care of by another startup that has already built it and has already been successful. I don't think you've yet seen enough of those come through. I think you're beginning to, which is why we're also excited at the explosion of, you know, these giant, payment startups coming out of Nigeria, like your Flutterwaves, like your Paystacks and your Pagas, to really provide that base layer for another generation to then like build on top of, right? I think the rails are beginning to get built and you're seeing the cost of operating a digital company in, in Africa dramatically drop. And so I think like, you know, that's really, really exciting. So hopefully the next generation of companies will have to spend a little bit less CapEx to build out these things themselves, as well as be able to move a little bit quicker because these services are already in place. No, that's great. That's great. And I appreciate you sharing that in terms of how you think about the uh, infrastructure and that kind of layer coming into the mix. So what's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? Wow. I think this, this has been, I guess, said like a couple of times, but I wish that there were more founders who would become investors. I, I think certainly, you know, you see that driving a lot of the success in the Bay Area and, and in a lot of like other developed markets. I think now we're beginning to see a lot of founders begin to have significant exits in Africa. And my genuine hope is that more and more of them become angels, become or start their own venture firms to be able to continue to invest in the next generation. I think that's the one thing I would love to change about venture. I think a lot of the other issues you see in venture, whether that's about you know, picking the right companies or making sure that the terms are fair enough or making sure that the right founders get visibility or a range of issues. I think a lot of that could be overcome if we simply had, you know, more entrepreneurs at the table on the other side of the table making those calls. Yeah. First of all, I think that's a really great point about having more founders become investors and reinvest that into the ecosystems that they came from, right? My last question for you is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders that want to build a business currently are located maybe in an emerging market? I would say the one piece of advice is to just do it, you know. I think you're well positioned in that you're already there. You can see the opportunities that others might not. So I think one big thing is like, you know, there's there's no perfect time. So I think just really start doing it. I think the second piece of advice would really be about, you know, enjoying the process and finding the right people to build it alongside with. I think they're going to be trying time. It's not a, a matter of if, but it's a matter of when. And so making sure you have the right people around you who not only support you from a, a skill set perspective, but 
but really from a energy perspective is, is really important. Related to that would be don't just hire your friends. I see a lot of founding teams who aren't able to properly articulate, you know, why this constellation came together. I, I think it is important to sort of like, you know, really think about who are the best people to build this together with, both in terms of energy, but but again, also in terms of like industry experience and complementary skill set. So I think all that is really important. But start now, there's never a right time and make sure you get the right people to build alongside with because it's going to be a tough journey. You will see these people more than you see your family. So, you know, it's quite important that they're wonderful human beings. Exactly, exactly. Those are all great. I think you touched on it too, but making sure you also have people that have that emotional support as well that are there for you and really have that empathy in terms of what you bring to the table, what they bring to the table in terms of obviously the belief in what you're building. That's really important. Well, Aaron... Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Ah, thank you, Mike. I really enjoyed this. It was a lot of fun. I'm always glad to share the excitement we have for these markets, which often get overlooked. So thank you for sharing this message. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Aaron. I highly recommend following him on Twitter at Aaron Q. Fu. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe. <laughs>